0: Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in Him. We're here in Galatians 3. We're going to be reading the first 14 verses, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please now look at verse 1. Listen as I read. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Father, we want to come this morning and just rejoice in the fact that we are, as we sang a moment ago, we are blameless in your sight because of Jesus Christ. We are accepted, adopted as sons because of him. And so everything we have, our our status, our salvation, our sanctification, every last aspect of the Christian life is centered on and rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. And so may we be reminded of that this morning, that this is how it's always been. You have always expected your people to be people of faith, total confidence in you, not in the flesh, not in their abilities or circumstances, but in you and you alone. May we be reminded of that and encouraged by that this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So I know this is a little bit of a weird uh, opening analogy or illustration, but if you will bear with me for a moment, I hope it will take us where we want to go. I want to ask us a question, and that question is, who are the Muppets? All right, the Muppets. In other words, what are the characters or who are the characters that have made up the whole realm of Muppetness across both Sesame Street and the Muppet Show? Because there's some overlap in characters between those two historically over the years. So as we think about that, who would they be? Now, our first impulse I recognize as I ask that question is to answer it with some of the more obvious names that would first come to our mind. Kermit, Big Bird, Miss Piggy, Fozzie, Cookie Monster, Elmo. You get it. You know them all probably. You grew up watching them, no doubt, many of you. And in one sense, those would all be correct answers. But we need to recognize something before we really begin to answer the question and the thing we need to recognize is that the muppets have changed over time. For example, in 1970 when Sesame Street was really first getting started its, its initial season, there was no Elmo. I know kids today can't imagine a day without Elmo, but there was a day without Elmo. However, there was a character named Roosevelt Franklin. Anybody remember Roosevelt Franklin in this room? There was like three people in the first okay, no, it's fine. Uh, He was only around for five seasons, from 1970 to 1975, at which point he was discontinued and only appears today occasionally in printed books that you can get uh, regarding Sesame Street or The Muppets. Uh, Or maybe this one will be a little more familiar to more of you in the room. How about Don Music? Oh, yeah, some of you know Don Music. I remember Don from when I was a kid watching Sesame Street in the 80s. Don's thing was he would try to play the piano, and he would get frustrated and bang his head into the piano when he couldn't get it right. Right? He was a character from 1974, so he only overlapped with uh, Roosevelt for a year, all the way up until 1992, when his performer, Richard Hunt, died. And they continued to show some reruns of his bits up until 1998, when literally they canceled him completely for fear that kids would bang their heads into pianos, having watched him, because that's the culture we live in today. Uh, Not even Kermit. Has been around for every season of Muppetness over the past 30 years. He did appear in the very first season of Sesame Street. Uh, he was like an explainer, a teacher kind of character of different things. But Jim Henson quickly realized that Kermit would become his trademark character, and he didn't want him getting stuck on Sesame Street. And so he pulled him out for the second season, and he didn't. He would only appear occasionally after that. And his role on Sesame Street was replaced by a Muppet named Her- Herbert. Herbert Bird's Foot. And of course, nobody remembers Herbert Bird's Foot, right? I don't. Now listen, my point is, answering the question of who are the Muppets is not quite as easy as it may first sound when you, when you first hear the question, because depending on how or when you're looking at it, you could come up with different, yet all equally correct answers, right? If I say, you know, who are the Muppets today? You're going to get one set of answers. If I say, well, who are the Muppets in 1987? Just pick a specific year. You're going to get a little bit different answer. If I say, who are the Muppets across all time? Again, you're going to get another answer. So do you get it? Do you understand this concept? I know it's a little bit strange, but stick with me for just a moment, because I think we can use that understanding in order to help us answer the real question that's on my mind this morning, and that is, who are the people of God? You see, one of the truths of scripture that you just need to understand in order, order to really get the, the, what God is doing in this world and the larger story of his plans for, for his creation is that that God has always had a people. He has always had a people. From the earliest days of creation until the very end, God has always had a people. But when we ask who those people are, we can come to different yet equally correct answers depending on how and when we are asking that question. Does that make sense? Okay, so for example, if I were to ask Any normal Jew in Paul's day, hey, who are the people of God? They would respond very simply with, we are, right? That's we, the the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, we are the people of God. And of course, that would have been a correct answer from one particular perspective. Clearly, God had selected the nation of Israel above all the other nations on earth, the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob to be his chosen people, But let's recognize the fact that that has not always been the case, because who were the people of God before Israel, or before Abraham? I told you God has always had a people. Well, I can go to a really easy example that doesn't require a lot of thought or explanation. What about about Adam and Eve? Were they not the first people of God there immediately after creation in the garden? And now, recognizing that answer, let me ask you another question to kind of follow up on it to help get your mind working here. Uh, Were Adam and Eve Jewish? Were, Were they members of the children of Israel? No, not at all. They're not Jewish. They are human. In the beginning, the people of God encompassed all of humanity, all two of them right so all of humanity is is the people of god to begin with and so you know here we have two different answers to the one question who are the people of god both are correct on the one hand i've got adam and eve on the other hand i've got the children of israel and both can be right depending on how and when we are asking this question so does this make sense are you with me at least in concept for the moment all right hold that hold that hold that hold that hold that man i'm getting uh, getting excited let's make one more observation One more, and then we'll be ready to jump into the text. Now, I've given us two totally different answers to the question, right? You agree with that? I want to emphasize then that you recognize that these answers are truly different. At surface level, as I look at the two groups, Adam and Eve, children of Israel, they are different groups, are they not? Okay, everybody acknowledge that? And yet, is there anything that is the same amongst them? And in that question, I'm not really looking so much for specific ties between Adam and Eve and the children of Israel, just those two. What I'm really asking is, is there anything uh, that is like a common thread that would tie all of the people of God from all of history together into one group? Because as we look at God's word, we never see that God has peoples, plural. We see that God has a people, singular. And so what is the binding agent? What is the point of continuity amidst all of the, from a human perspective, discontinuity that we see in the story of Scripture? This is is where Paul is now turning in his argument with the Galatians. As we saw last week here in verse 6, Paul turns to this example of Abraham as a biblical and historical proof that faith is better than the law. In verses 1 through 5, he had been making the same argument as he was turning and looking at their own experience of receiving the Holy Spirit. How did you get the Spirit? Did you get it by faith or by the law? And the answer was by faith. But in verse 6, now, he turns to a specific Old Testament passage, Genesis 15, verse 6, to show them that faith really is superior. And the question that is being answered here by Paul in verse 6 is How was Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, saved? How was he justified? And you can see here in just the quotation itself in verse 6 that Abraham was in fact justified. He was counted as righteous. God counts him, declares him to be righteous in his sight. Well, Well, exactly how does that happen? Does it happen because Abraham is circumcised Well, no, that's not how. The story, or the part of the story that Paul quotes here in Genesis 15, 6, comes two chapters before circumcision is introduced. So it's not by circumcision that Abraham is declared righteous. Well, what about keeping the Mosaic law? No, no, that's a silly answer altogether because uh, Moses won't be born for about 400 years and the law won't come until some point after that when he goes up on Mount Sinai. So Abraham is going to be long dead by the time the law is given. So again, that's. That's not how or why he's justified. So how? How or why was Abraham justified before God? Well, you can see it here in the text. It's through faith. He believed God. God had given Abraham all of these amazing promises, right? Abram, you're going to be a great nation. Your offspring are going to possess the land of Canaan. Your offspring are going to be so many. They'll be like the dust of the earth, uncountable. I'm going to make your name great so that it'll be a blessing, and in you, All the nations of the earth will be blessed. These are the promises that are given to Abram there in Genesis 12 and 13. And yet, as we saw last week, by by chapter 15, Abram is doubting, right? He's looking at his circumstances. He's looking at himself. He sees he has no children. He sees that both himself and his wife are, are elderly. That the, the ability even to, to fulfill the promises God has given them is, is gone, really. It's not just slipping away. It's gone. So, so God, how can these things be true? That's the cry of Abram in chapter 15. And God responds to his doubts, and this was important, and I hope you picked it up last Sunday, not with any kind of proof, right? Not with not with like pictures of of the future so that he could have something tangible to grab hold of. He responds to Abram with nothing more than a promise that is backed by himself. That's it. That's all Abram was given. And so now that Abram has this promise based on nothing but the character of God himself, Abram has a choice and that is believe God or don't. Black and white. Trust him, don't trust him. Think that he can do it or don't think that he... You have to pick one or the other. And of course, this is the part that Paul is quoting here in Galatians, where we see Abraham's choice, that he believes. He believes God, and that's really the the point of emphasis. He believes God. His faith, it's not in proof, it's not in his abilities, it's not in circumstances, His belief, his faith are in God and God alone for the fulfillment of these things. And this is the faith that God counts as righteousness. This is where we ended last time. Now, all of this would be mind-blowing enough in and of itself for someone who is hearing these things from from Jewish uh, ears, with Jewish ears or from a Jewish perspective, to be confronted with the biblical and historical theological fact that Abraham's salvation is not rooted in his circumcision or his law-keeping. No, it's rooted in his faith and nothing else. That should be enough, but now Paul is going to develop this idea a little bit further with absolutely zero tact. Know then, out of what I just said in verse 6, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now, you and I read that verse, and we are totally unaffected by it. We don't even think about it because we grew up, like, in Sunday schools and church camps and VBS and Christian schools or whatever the case may be, singing a song that many of you know very well, and please don't sing along with me. I'm not singing it either. Father Abraham, okay? And we remember the lyrics to that song, do we not? Father Abraham, he had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you, so the right response is, let's just praise the Lord. No, Chris, no actions again right now. Thank you. Um, You know that song well. Here's what I would like you to do for me at this moment. I want you to put on your imagining cap, and I want you to imagine that you are a devout Jew, okay? You are Jewish. You've grown up in a Jewish home. That's all you've known your whole life. You've been thoroughly versed in the, the Old Testament stories and the basic beliefs and understandings of Jewish culture and religion. And I want you to imagine that you have been given an assignment through school or your synagogue or whatever it's the, else the case may be to go and write a report on a normal Christian church. So you show up at just any typical Christian church on any typical Sunday morning and you walk into any typical children's sunday school class and you're sitting there and craft time has passed and story time has passed and now it's song time and this is the song that the teacher leads the children in father abraham has many sons many sons has father abraham and now all these little gentile children that you're observing say i am one of them and so are you so let's just praise the lord how do you think you would respond to that scenario if you're the, the devout Jewish person observing this room in front of us? Don't answer out loud. Do, do you think you would like be totally like, yep, that's right, all these little Gentile boys and girls know it, yet we're all sons and daughters of Father Abraham. Do you think this is how you would respond? Probably not. While it may have a tremendous aerobic benefit From your perspective as a Jew, that song would be teaching these children lies. Lies. It would be be communicating things that you would hold to be absolute falsehoods because from your perspective, these little Gentile children, as cute as they may be, marching up and down and spinning around and sitting down, are not sons of Abraham. (laughs) They're just not. Now, if it was being sung by like Jewish children on the Saturday school class at the synagogue, it's one thing, but not, not in this particular context, and that is because both in Paul's day and in ours, the sons of Abraham that Paul mentions here in verse 7 would have been viewed by the Jewish community in a purely ethnic and national way. Ethnically, the sons of Abraham are those descendants of Abraham through Isaac And Jacob. And then nationally, it is these people, these descendants, ethnic descendants of Abraham, who make up the nation of Israel. And these then, because of their ethnic and national identity, it's these people who are the people of God. To a Jew, the people of God equals ethnic and national Israel. And this would be just their mindset. And their belief, and so here's Paul now, in verse seven, pulling the pin on a theological hand grenade, and just like tossing it into the midst of all of that, and just letting it explode for them to have to process and deal with. He's like, "Is this true? Is this the way we should understand the sons of Abraham?" Nope, (laughs) not according to verse seven. The true sons of Abraham are not those who are biologically related to him through some shared DNA and therefore nationally citizens of Israel. No, the true sons of Abraham are those who are spiritually related to him because they share a common faith. In the same way that Abraham had to abandon all hope in himself and in his circumstances and place all of his trust in God and God alone for the fulfillment of those promises. So everyone else who has to do the same thing finds that they too are like Abraham in his faith. Their their common faith is the binding agent. And this is Again, we can't appreciate it, but this is mind-blowing from a Jewish perspective. You know, because does this mean then that, that Gentiles can become a part of the people of God, not by somehow attaching themselves into the nation of Israel, by becoming a proselyte and being circumcised and keeping the law, and, and in this way almost becoming viewed as an ethnic Israelite. Then, does it mean they can become a part of the people of God simply by having faith like Abraham? Yes. That's exactly what it means. Exactly what it means. You see it here in verse 8. The scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Whoa, 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 whoa. First, Paul pointed out the true nature of abraham's salvation that it's not by circumcision it's not by keeping the law it was by faith right second paul pointed out the true nature of abraham's descendants it's not really about their biology it's really about their faith and now paul is pointing out the true nature of the promises given to abraham are are not what the jews thought yeah that's exactly what he's doing he is saying that the gospel of salvation through faith in Christ for all of humanity was proclaimed in embryonic form to Abraham when God said to him, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. This is certainly not the way the Jews understood that promise. By and large, they would have viewed the choosing of Abraham as being God's act of rejecting the rest of humanity. Now, there's some sense in that that I think is probably true, but not exactly in the way they saw it. They understood it, I think, as if God was no longer going to really concern himself with the rest of mankind, that if the rest of humanity wanted to know God now, they had to come and attach themselves to this family. And what Paul is doing here is he's turning that on its head a bit. He's saying the choosing of Abraham wasn't just God's sign that he was done with humanity as a whole. No, he was actually showing all of humanity how they could be made right with him. And that same blessing of righteousness with God through faith alone, well, guess what? That's available to everyone. Everyone. Therefore, he can say in verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. And again, from a Jewish perspective, recognize that what Paul is doing is he's he's like taking core beliefs that they would hold to, and he's sort of reinterpreting them. He's not really doing that. This is what they really are. But from their perspective, he would be reinterpreting these truths. You know, He's reinterpreted the true nature of Abraham's salvation, the true nature of Abraham's descendants, the true nature of the promises that were given to Abraham. And now finally, he's reinterpreting the true nature of what it means to be the people of God. Because the people of God are the ones who will be blessed along with Abraham, right? And for the Jews, that status and that blessing had in their minds always been tied to their ethnic and national standing, but not according to Paul. No, he says it to them point blank here. It is those who are of faith, those people who are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And in the Jewish mind, you know, you can't separate these things, right? You've got Abraham, and you've got descendants, you've got promises, you've got blessings, you've got nation, you've got people of God. These are all connected ideas, one with another, that they then tie back to the law. And Paul is saying, nope, let's unplug that understanding and replug it in to the understanding of faith in Christ alone. This is something he will continue to do in more detail Later on. And I just would remind us, as I need to keep doing, you know, what's what's the point of all of this argument? The point of the argument is to show us that faith is better. It's better. It's better than the Old Testament law. Uh, keeping the law didn't give them the Spirit. That came through faith. Keeping the law isn't what caused Abraham to be justified before God. No, that was through faith as well. Keeping the law Uh, isn't what makes you a true son of Abraham. It's your faith that connects you to him. Keeping the law isn't the means of God's blessing to all humanity through the promises of Abraham. Nope, it's faith that way too. And guess what? Keeping the law isn't how you become a part of the people of God. That itself is by and through faith alone that you ever become a part of the people of God. Therefore, faith is better than the law. And now, back to my opening question. Who are the people of God? Well, we have to recognize that while we can give differing answers depending on how and when we look at that particular question, the common thread that ties all of them together, the the binding agent, if you will, is faith. It always has been, and it always will be. The true people of God throughout all of time have been people of faith, and this is something that's never changed. And this is really What's at the heart of the problem here in Galatia, if you think about it, because the false teachers are telling them that in order to be a part of the people of God, you have to be Jewish. You have to be circumcised and you have to keep the Old Testament law. So, okay, hey, if you're a Jew by birth, great, keep it up. Just keep it up. Yeah, you got to add Christ in. We get that, but keep it up. You've got to follow the law. You got to stick with this because being Jewish is what it means to be a part of the people of God. And for those of you who are Gentiles, well, hey, you need to nationalize. You need to be circumcised and, and obey the law and view yourself in a Jewish way. Yeah, have Christ, but but make sure that you're You're doing all these other things, too, because only Jews, either by birth or nationalization, who keep the law are the true people of God. And this is the false gospel of the Galatians in a nutshell. Because it's not what it means to be a part of the people of God, not at all. And that's Paul's point to them here and really throughout the letter. To be a part of the people of God no longer means being Jewish. It just doesn't. You don't have to become a part of the nation of Israel because Christ has come and fulfilled the law, because Christ has come as the true Israel. Anyone who is a part of him is a part of the people of God through faith. You know, this is what I want us to focus on this morning as we partake of the Lord's table together. Often, you know, we talk about the Lord's table from the perspective of our union with one another or our union with Christ. And of course, both of those are good and right, and we should focus on them, and And all that's good. I'm not saying anything is not. I just, can we talk about this though this morning from the perspective of Christ's union with us? And I know that may seem like I'm splitting hairs or just kind of playing a semantic game there with the wording, but I promise you I'm not. As I said, faith is the common thread that binds all of the people of God together throughout time into one. And this faith is not devoid of an object. It never has been and never will be. And Christ, I would say, is the object of all that faith. For the Old Testament saints, their faith was forward-looking. And no, I know questions that are popping in your mind. I can't explain to you what they knew about Christ and the gospel and the coming of these things and how all of that worked. But I can tell you this, that since the promises of God find their fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ, their faith in the promises of God is counted by God in his eternal reckoning as righteousness through Christ's death. For us, as New Testament saints, our faith looks back to what Christ has come and accomplished on our behalf. And like the saints of old, we too find ourselves at the place where we have to let go of all ability and circumstances, putting any hope in those things and putting all of our trust in the God who has come and promised salvation to us in the person and work of his son alone. So that either way, whether we're talking about saints of old or saints for today, We recognize that our faith is what binds us together, specifically our faith in Christ. And just just think about that, that Christ has come and offered himself to us. And he wants all of his people to be one in him. He's made us one in him. That we stand justified and accepted before God because of what Christ has done. And that's what I want us to remember. And so as we partake of the bread this morning, remember that the bread reminds us that Jesus the eternal Son of God, the God of creation, who not only spoke the world into existence, but holds it together by the power of his word, the infinite, powerful, limitless one became human for us so that he could present his body to be broken to make us one with himself. (laughs) Think about that. This cup, as you drink it, remember that it was his blood that was the price paid to make us one with him, that we were completely unable and incapable of being right with him. That righteousness, it was never ours. God didn't choose us because we were so great. No, no, he came in grace, and through faith he has saved us, and nothing else, and the price of that was his own blood. And that Jesus gave us this act, as a continual picture and reminder of the gospel, of the fact that he has pursued us and made us one with him until he returns. It reminds us in a very tangible way that he is the one who comes to us in order to make us one with himself and make us a part of the people of God. Well, the men who are serving this morning, please come to the front. Paul tells us, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes again. And we say to that, even so, come Lord Jesus, will you bow your heads with me? Father, thank you for sending your son to make us one with him, to, for pursuing us. We, we are like Abraham, unworthy. And yet we see that you've had a plan throughout all of time to make us Gentiles right with you and your own people and so we, we gather this morning, what we're doing here is, it was unknown, it was unheard of, unbelievable even in Paul's day, that we, Gentiles, could be one with the people of God, but you have broken down all walls of separation, you have made us one together in Christ, and so we rejoice this morning in the body and blood of Christ that was spilled for us to pursue us and make us one with himself. And so may we go out of here today then, Lord, living as the people of God in boldness, recognizing that we are viewed as being blameless, and and we can go out and serve you and represent you to the ends of the earth and all of the realms of responsibility that you have given us. May we do that faithfully. In faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.